The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 53, to the chief musician Satu Mahalat, a contemplation of David. The fool have said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? and do not call upon God, there they are in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God has despised them. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. Um, you know, one thing about that psalm, uh, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 begin in the same way with the same words, and the Calvinists will say, see, you cannot choose God, and it says it right there in the Psalms, and that's what Paul cites in the book of Romans, without taking the words in their proper context. What does it say? The fool has said in his heart, no God. He's speaking about an atheist. He's speaking about people that are corrupt. David could not have written those words if it included him. Think things through and take things in context. You have to call on Jesus. God's not going to come and regenerate you in order to believe, and then you believe, and then you're saved. That's not how it works. You hear the gospel, you believe, or you turn it down, and that's it. One plus one will always equal two in proper theology. Okay, we are now in... Joshua 13, it's verses 15 through 33. This is entitled, An Inheritance by Jericho Eastward. Um, I'm not going to give, like last week, a lot of typology on this. We've already done these same areas, the same names, three or four times since Numbers and Deuteronomy. So if you want to know the typological meaning of these things, just go back and watch those sermons. There's no point in me repeating what I've already said several times. But they're wonderful verses. They are here for a reason. Okay, starting in verse 15. And Moses had given the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. Their territory was from Aurora, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city which is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain by Mediba, Heshbon and all its cities that are in the plain, Debon, Bamoth Baal, Beth Baal Meon, Jahaza, Kedemot, Mephaat, Kiriathaim, Sibma, Zereth Shahar on the mountain of the valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jeshimot, all the cities of the plain, and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses had struck with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hor, and Reva, who were princes of Sihon, dwelling in the country. The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. And the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben, according to their families, the cities and their villages. 
Moses also had given an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the children of Gad, according to their families. Their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the Ammonites as far as Aror, which is before Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramoth, Mizpah, and Betonim, and from Mahanaim to the border of Debir, and in the valley of Bet-Haram, Bet-Nimrah, Sukkot, and Zaphom, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Kinneret, on the other side of the Jordan eastward, this is the inheritance of the children of Gad according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Moses also had given an inheritance to half the tribe of Manasseh. It was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh according to their families. Their territory was from Mahanaim, all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead and Ashtoreth and Edrei, Cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan were for the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for half the children of Machir, according to their families. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. But the, to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he had said to them. In chapters 1 through 12, Israel's entrance into Canaan and subduing of the land were detailed. Within those chapters, there were several logical divisions of what was taking place. As a whole, those chapters should be taken as the first major division of the historical aspect of the book. The next major division began at verses 13, 1 through 14. That defined the scope of the land to be inherited and the people groups who possessed the land prior to Israel on both sides of the Jordan. This major section is to go from chapter 13, which we started last week, through chapter 22. It is long and the structure is often difficult. If we can just remember that this lengthy division of the land is all picturing the Lord's distribution of his inheritance to his people, it will take away much of the tedium that we may otherwise feel. Think of our position in Christ. We have received Christ's completed work. We have been given the pledge of the Spirit that Jim mentioned as he opened today, the guarantee of our salvation. And yet, we have actually not fully received the inheritance that has been granted. Think of it as a will that cannot be revoked. A son has given his land inheritance. It has been guaranteed by the legal document, but he has to live out his life while waiting for the actual bestowal of it. There is also a condition in the will that things will be added to the inheritance, rewards, or taken away from it, meaning losses, based on how he lives his life while waiting for the inheritance. Our text verse comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So much for losing your salvation. There you go. coordinate this. 
No, we didn't coordinate it at all. It's just the way things are. Our inheritance is absolutely guaranteed, and it cannot be revoked. However, the quality of the inheritance is up to the one who is receiving it to act in accordance with whatever instructions are given. Israel has attained the promise, but how it handles the conditional portion is up to them. Look to how God has dealt with national Israel, and you will more fully understand how God will deal with you as an individual. Keep thinking on these lines as we go through these pages. The meticulous nature of defining each inheritance assures us that God is being equally meticulous in his dealings with us. The excitement of the first conquests of Joshua remains true for what we are now going through if we can just remember this. The passage today may seem overloaded with names and information. There is certainly a ton of typology in what is presented, and delving into speculation on the minutiae would lead us away from the main theme. God is revealing his plan to us in a manner that reveals Christ. Keep that in mind. This great truth continues to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three separate thoughts for you today. The first is the land of Reuben. It's verses 15 through 23. In Joshua 13, 8 through 14 that we looked at last week, an overall description of the land east of the Jordan was detailed. With that complete, the parceling out of that land to the two and one half tribes will now take place. Each step is methodically detailed to ensure that an accurate accounting of each inheritance is recorded. The land has already been briefly described in Numbers 32. Here's what it said then. So Moses gave to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities within the borders of the cities of the surrounding country. And the children of Gad built Dibon and Atorot and Aror, Atorot and Shofan and Jazer and Jogbeha, Bet Nimrah and Bet Haran, fortified cities and folds for sheep. And the children of Reuben built Heshbon and Eliale and Kiriataim, Nebo and Baalmeon, their names being changed, and Sibma. And they gave other names to the cities which they built. And the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt in it. Also Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and took its small towns and called them Havot Jair. Then Nobah went and took Kanath and its villages, and he called it Nobah after his own name. As for the divisions being documented in Joshua, the tribes would be able to refer back to these writings if there was ever a dispute concerning the land. This parceling out of the land begins with, verse 15, And Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. Reuben is the firstborn son of Israel, and his inheritance is detailed first. His name means, see, a son. The words, according to their families, mean that the overall parcel is given based on their tribal inheritance, and from there it will be more precisely divided by those within Reuben in a fair and equitable manner. It is Moses who granted this land with the stipulation that they would go with Israel into battle in order to subdue the land of Canaan. Once that was accomplished, the grant would be considered permanent. As for the overall area of Reuben... 
verse 16. Their territory was from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain by Mediba. The Hebrew reads border instead of territory. The land is being defined by the southern border and moving north according to their cities. Further, the land is the southernmost portion of the land that is east of the Jordan. It borders the land of Moab. This border was almost identically described in verse 13, 9 last week. The cities of this land include, verse 17, Heshbon and all its cities that are in the plain, Debon, Badmoth, Bamot, Baal, Beth, Baal, Meom. Just for reference, the names of these locations mean Heshbon, intelligence, Debon, pining, Bamot, Baal, high places of Baal or great high place of Baal. Beth Baal Meon means house of the master of the hideout. As an interesting point of history, the famous Mesha Steli, or Moabite stone, was found in Debon, mentioned right here. Verse 18, Jahaza Kedemot Nethfaat. In sloppy fashion, the translation here and in the coming verses leaves out the conjunctions. Ve Yatsa u Kedemot u and Jahaza, and Kedemot, and Methfaat. Jahaz is a variant spelling of Jahaz. It is where the battle between Israel and Sihon took place, as was recorded back in Numbers 21. It means trodden down. Kedemot means ancient times, antiquity, or beginning. Mephaad is first seen here. It means something like place of radiance. Joshua 21 shows that all three of these will become Levitical cities. Verse 19, Kiryatayim, Sibma, Zeret Shahar, on the mountain of the valley. Again, each location is preceded by a conjunction which is left off by the translators. Kiryatayim means twin cities or double cities. Sibma may mean spice. The third city is Zeret HaShahar Behar HaEmek, or Zeret, the Shahar in mountain the valley. It is found only here in the Bible. The meaning is hard to pin down. It may mean splendor of the dawn, but the word specialists at Abarim seem to stretch the meaning, saying it might point to an eclipse. They call it distress at a solar eclipse or darkness at midday. They then say that these events are obviously mimicked in the biblical accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection. That would be incorrect. There was no eclipse at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. People get that wrong all the time. The moon is full at the Passover, so it is seen at night and it is hidden during the day. Therefore, the moon cannot eclipse the sun at that time of the month. In other words, something really supernatural happened at the crucifixion of Christ. The most probable meaning is splendor of the dawn. As Zaret Shahar is believed by some to border the Dead Sea, the beautiful coloring of the landscape would be resplendent, and especially so at dawn. Verse 20, Bet Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, and Bet Jeshimot. Again, and to be precise, each location is preceded by the word and. Bet Peor means house of Peor. Peor comes from the verb pa'ar, meaning to open. Thus, it is the house of the opening. The next location is Ashtot, Ha Pisgah, or Ashtot of the Pisgah, meaning slopes of the cleft. Beth Jeshimot means house of the desolations. Verse 21, 
all the cities of the plain and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. This means all of the other cities that were in the realm of Sihon and which extended out over the open and flat plain, the Mishor that was mentioned in Joshua 13, verse 9. This land is very suitable for grazing. All of this was the land of Sihon, verse 21 continues, whom Moses had struck. The battle was detailed in Numbers 21, and it has been referred to numerous times since. It next says, verse 21 continues, with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reva. Oto ve'et nise Midian, et Evi, ve'et Rechem, ve'et Zur, ve'et Hur, ve'et Reva. With and with princes Midian, with Evi, and with Rechem, and with Zur, and with Hur, and with Reva. This does not mean that they were killed in the same battle with Sihon, but in the same manner. Rather, they had conspired against Israel by seducing them, and so the Lord instructed Moses to take vengeance on them, as is seen in Numbers 31. Here they are called Nasi, or princes, literally exalted ones. The word comes from Nasa, meaning to lift up. Hence, they were raised up to serve under Sihon. Their names as best can be determined are Evi, desirous, Rechem, many-colored, Tsur, rock, Hur, white, Reva, fourth, and of them it next says, verse 21 continues, who are princes of Sihon dwelling in the country. Nisike Sihon Yosheve Haaretz, consecrated Sihon dwellers the land. Sihon had taken the land he possessed from Moab. Because they were dwelling in the Moabites' territory when it was taken over, Midianite men were appointed as vassals under him over a portion of the territory. Here, instead of prince, the word nisike is used. This speaks of a libation that is poured out or a molted image. Hence, it signifies something like pouring out authority or consecrating to serve in a particular position. Along with killing these vassals, it says, verse 22, the children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor. The slaying of Balaam and the five men just mentioned is recorded in Numbers 31, verse 8. So infamous is Balaam that he will be named two more times in Joshua and also in Nehemiah and Micah. In the New Testament, Peter, Jude, and Revelation also discuss his deeds. He was, verse 22 continues, the soothsayer among those who were killed by them. The word used to describe Balaam is the verb kasam. It signifies to practice divination or act as a soothsayer. It is also used of the witch of Endor where she acts as a conjurer when she brought up Samuel for King Saul. The biblical narrative does not tell how he ended up among these vassals. At the end of the account, Numbers 24, 25, it said that he departed and returned to his place. The meaning could be that he turned to his place but never got there, instead stopping at the dwelling of these Midianites and dying there with them. Or he could have returned to his home after giving advice to Midian about how to handle Israel. When they took his advice, he may have returned there to receive his wages and been killed. No matter what, he was found among these men and was slain by the sword. Verse 23, and the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. The Hebrew here is very difficult, but it reads similarly to Numbers 34, verse 6, and Joshua 15, verse 12. It says, Vehi gebul bene Ruven hayarden u gebul. 
and was border son to Reuben, the Jordan, and his border. The most likely meaning is that Reuben's border is formed by the natural border of the Jordan. The bank of the Jordan, or the descender, is said to be the western border of the land given to Reuben. But this is only in the very northern extremity. Almost all of their western border lay on the eastern edge of the Dead Sea. And because of this, it can be seen that the Dead Sea is actually thought of as a final portion of the Jordan River. If you think of the life of Christ, it makes all the sense in the world. Verse 23 continues, This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben, according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Reuben desired this land outside of Canaan, and it was granted to him. Rather than agriculture, the land is mostly suitable for pasturing flocks. Of their history in the Bible, Cambridge notes, In the chief struggle of the nation, Reuben never took part. No judge, no prophet, no hero of the tribe is handed down to us. Thus, the history of their tribe is almost one of obscurity. There is an inheritance that is coming to us, and it has already been granted. The deal is done. We have received the promise because of Jesus. It is based on his work alone, that of God's own son, There is no need to worry if we will enter glory. It is guaranteed because we believed what was told to us. We heard the word of faith, the gospel story, and we believed on the glorious name of Jesus. The inheritance is given to all who are sanctified. It has been granted because of what God has done. It has come through the blood of Jesus, he who died and who rose again. In him, the victory is won. Our second thought today, the land of Gad, verses 24 through 28. Verse 24, Moses also had given an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the children of Gad, according to their families. Gad is the seventh son of Israel, and his inheritance is the second to be detailed. His name means fortune. Like Reuben, his parcel of land came from the direction of Moses. As for the overall area of Gad, verse 25, their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead. Jazer, or Yatser, means helpful, or he shall help. The words, all the cities of Gilead, do not mean that they possessed all of the land of Gilead. Rather, half of the Gilead is given to Manasseh, as will be indicated in verse 1331. And yet, no cities are mentioned in that half. Hence, all the cities of Gilead means that there were no inhabitable cities in the other half of the Gilead that went to Manasseh. Along with that, verse 25 continues, and half the land of the Ammonites as far as Aurora, which is before Rabbah. The Hebrew reads, and half land sons Ammon. What this means is that it was originally Ammonite land that was taken by Sihon. When Israel defeated Sihon, it then became the property of Israel. The importance of this is that Israel was told by the Lord in Deuteronomy 2, and when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. This land will later be contested by Ammon in Judges 11. However, Israel's right to it was firm because Ammon lost possession of it to Sihon, and Sihon lost possession of it to Israel. The name Rabbah means great or populous. The description continues with verse 26, and from Heshbon to Ramat Mizpah and Betonim, and from Mahanaim to the border of Debir. 
Keshbone signifies explanation of things or intelligence. Ramat ha mitzpeh or Ramat the mitzpah means something like height of the watchtower. This is the area where Jacob and Laban set up their heap of stones as a witness between them, as was seen in Genesis 31. What a beautiful story that was. Betanim is found only here in the Bible, and it probably means pistachios, although it could come from beten, meaning a womb, and thus it would mean hollows. This would still fit with pistachios, which form two hollows when split open and the nut is removed. And a little squiggle for your brain, something I heard this past week I never knew, is that pistachios can actually explode. They can catch on fire all by themselves, so they have to be processed very carefully. There you go, new squiggle. Mahanaim means two camps. As for the last name, the Hebrew reads Lidbir. Most translations equate it to Debir, which means place of the word. However, it may be the same as Lodabar, which is first seen in 2 Samuel 9, verse 4. If this is so, then it literally means no word. As such, the intended meaning could go from no pasture to nothing. It is used in a pun in Amos 6, verse 13, where it says, You who rejoice over Lodabar, think of it, you who rejoice over nothing, who say, Have we not taken Kanarim for ourselves by our own strength? In this, it means you who rejoice over nothing. The idea then is that of stupidity. Next, verse 27, and in the valley of Bet Haram, Bet Nimrah, Sukkot, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Bet Haram is found only here in scripture, but it is certainly the same place that is known as Bet Haran, found in Numbers 32, 36. It means mountain house or house of the lofty. Bet Nimrah means house of the leopard or house of clean water. Sukkot means tabernacles. The location received its name in Genesis 33, verse 17, when Jacob built himself a house and made tabernacles for his livestock. Hence, it was thereafter called Sukkot. Zaphon means north, but also concealed, because the north is the hidden direction of the northern hemisphere. Verse 27 continues, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Kinneret, on the other side of the Jordan, eastward. Hayarden ugebul ad yam kinneret ever hayarden mizraha. The Jordan and border to extremity Sea Kinneret, side the Jordan, eastward. This defines the westernmost area of the land grant, which is the eastern side of the Jordan River and reaching to the very southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 28, this is the inheritance of the children of Gad, according to their families, the cities and their villages. Gad desired to join with Reuben in the land outside of Canaan, and it was granted to them. Taken together, the land of Reuben and Gad cover all of the kingdom that belonged to Sihon. The Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance given by God because of faith in His Son. Will He take it back? Of this, there is no chance. We have gone from death to life. The victory is won. And so, let us live out our lives as we should, anticipating the inheritance given to us. Living in holiness is right. That is understood. Living according to the glory of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, O God, for the promise that lies ahead. Help us to live in faith and faithfully too. May we conform to all that your word has said and may our lives and our hearts be loyal, pure, and true. 
Our third thought today is the land of the half-tribe of Manasseh. It's verses 29 through 32. Verse 29, Moses also had given an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. The wording is precise in this verse, but it is something that cannot be discerned from the English translation. The first occurrence of the word tribe is the word shevet. The second is the word mate. Both words are commonly translated as tribes, and they both signify a type of staff or rod. Further, both come from roots signifying to branch off. Though very similar in intent, shevet looks to a political stem and branch, whereas mate looks more to a genealogical one. For example, the first word, Shevet, was seen 18 times in the book of Deuteronomy, while Mate was never used in the entire book. Likewise, Shevet is used 33 times in Joshua, while Mate is used 17 times, but only from Joshua 13 through 22. So, to understand what is being said, we can translate this verse as, And gave Moses to half polity Manasseh, and it was to half descended sons Manasseh, according to their families. Manasseh is an adopted son of Israel, being the firstborn son of Joseph. Both sons of Joseph were to be given an inheritance along with the other sons of Israel. The land now to be detailed is the final parcel of the land to be portioned out east of the Jordan. The name Manasseh has a dual meaning of he shall forget and from a debt. Like Reuben and Gad, This parcel of land came from the direction of Moses, seen in Numbers chapter 32. Here's what it said there. And the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt in it. Also Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and took its small towns and called them Havot Jair. Then Nobah went and took Kanat and its villages, and he called it Nobah after his own name. As for the overall area of this half of Manasseh, verse 30, their territory was from Mahanaim, all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities. Because Machir dispossessed the Amorites in this area, Moses bestowed this land to half the tribe as an inheritance. This parcel nicely lines up with the parcel belonging to the other half of Manasseh west of the Jordan, so that the two comprise one enormous swath of land that covers both sides. When looking at them on a map, it almost looks like two arms stretching out, one to the east, one to the west. The territory of this half-tribe goes from Mahanaim on its south, which is on Gad's northern border, And it covers all of the area of the Bashan, as well as the towns of Jair, or Chavot Yair, meaning villages of the Enlightener. As a side note, Jair will be listed in the genealogy of the tribe of Judah in 1 Chronicles. Here's what it says there. Now after Hezron went into the daughter of Machir, the father of Gilead, whom he married when he was 60 years old, and she bore him Seguv. Seguv begot Jair, who had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. Despite this, he is reckoned as being a son of Manasseh in Numbers 32, and again in the next verse. 1 Chronicles 2, 21 and 22 said that he is a descendant of Manasseh through Machir's daughter, her son Seguv, and then through Jair. Thus, Manasseh is reckoned as his great, great-grandfather. 
The surprising part of his genealogy is his being reckoned as a son of Manasseh rather than a son of Judah. And this despite Machir's daughter having married Hezron, a grandson of Judah. This is because the reckoning of a person in scripture is through the father. However, this could be because Hezron was old when he married her and already had other children. He may not have wanted this son to interfere with the inheritance rights of his other children. So their son was reckoned through Manasseh. As far as the number of villages making up Jair, it changes from time to time in scripture. Depending on the account, it may be 23 villages, 30, or even 60. The reason for the difference is based upon the context of what is being said. For example, Moses spoke of the 60 towns of Jair in Deuteronomy 3. When he did, it was referring to everything in a wider sense that was taken by both Jair and a man named Noba. That included its daughter villages. In Numbers, it was referred to in its stricter sense, meaning only the cities captured by Jair. An example for understanding would be to say that Charlie Brown owns 15 McDonald franchises in Sarasota, Florida. Those are Charlie's McDonald's. However, there are 25 total McDonald's in Sarasota. One might say, I'm going to Charlie's for lunch, while actually going to one that is not Charlie's. The term is simply used for the whole. Later in Judges 10, it will say the following. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havot Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. There's no contradiction. The sons of Jair were given 30 of the 60 towns in this area to rule, and they were called by the name of their father within the wider sense of the term mentioned above. I know there is a ton of information that I've given you in the past two or three verses. This is important because someday somebody's going to say, well, I know where there's an error in the Bible. And they're going to take you here. And you're not going to be able to answer it unless you go to a well-prepared commentary or sermon on these verses. It's that important to understanding. I know it seems tedious, but this is recorded now. It is recorded by others. I don't think as well as me. I've taken more time. That's okay. I'm not bragging. I just went through everything to make sure that this is proper. This is why this is important. Though a bit confusing, with a little bit of research, it all makes complete sense. As far as this land it was the first recorded granting of land to any people of Israel, as noted in Numbers 32, verse 42. That is rather interesting, especially when considering that it is also the first land the inhabitants were to be permanently dispossessed from. In 1 Chronicles 5, this is recorded. So the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land. Their numbers increased from Bashan to Baal Hermon, that is, to Sinair or Mount Hermon. These were the heads of their father's houses, Ephor, Ishi, Eliel, Azriel, Jeremiah, Hodavia, and Jadiel. They were mighty men of valor, famous men, and heads of their father's houses. And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers, and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hala, Havor, Hara, and the river of Gozan to this day. The first of these tribes who were granted land 
were also the first to be dispossessed from it later in Israel's history. Very sad commentary. The majority of the people of these tribes disappeared into obscurity. As for their cities, verse 31, half of Gilead. This is the half of the Gilead to the north of what Gad received. No cities are listed in this area. Verse 31 continues, And Ashtoreth and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Ashtoreth is believed to signify unity of instructions and thus one law. Edrei means something like mighty. These, verse 31 continues, were for the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for half the children of Machir according to their families. This means that those who descend from Machir received land on both sides of the Jordan. As this is so, it is speculated that Machir was the only son of Manasseh. Machir means salesman. 1 Chronicles 7 verse 14 says that Manasseh bore him by a concubine from Aram, the same place from where Machir's son was named because of the union between his father and his mother. Manasseh and Manasseh's Aramitish concubine became their possession. This may explain why he then named his own son Gilead. Gilead means perpetual fountain or heap of booty. It is the border area between Syria and Canaan, and Machir may have called him this to honor the union between the two people groups he came from. This also explains why it said in Numbers 32 that he went to Gilead and took it and dwelt there. Verse 32. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance. Rather than which, it is probably better translated as whom. In other words, rather than referring to the land, it is referring to the people. Ele Ashur Nichal Moshe, these whom caused to inherit Moses. This then would correspond to the verses which opened each section of the passage. 13.15 said, and gave Moses to tribe, Mate, sons Reuben. Verse 13.24, and gave Moses to tribe, Mate, Gad. Verse 13.29, and gave Moses to half-tribe, Shevet, Manasseh. And it was to half-tribe, Mate, sons, Manasseh. And then verse 13.32, these whom caused to inherit Moses. This inheritance was granted by Moses, verse 32 continues, in the plains of Moab, on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho, eastward. Be'arvot Moab me'ever le'arden Yericho Mizracha, in plains Moab, from side to Jordan, Jericho, eastward. These words refer to that action of Moses, which explains the location of the inheritance as stated in Numbers 34. Putting the two side by side will show this. From Numbers 34, the location of the inheritance. For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho eastward toward the sunrise. And then the action of Moses. These whom caused to inherit Moses in plains Moab from side to Jordan Jericho eastward. The action was accomplished in the same place where the grant was made. Using the words of this verse and translating them into typology, it would say, those whom caused to inherit, he who draws out in pledge from father 
from side descender, place of fragrance, eastward. This would signify that in Christ's fulfillment of the law, the pledge from the Father is given in Christ's first advent and in anticipation of the heavenly promise. Next, verse 33. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. Here it turns to the political entity. And to tribe, meaning the polity, the Levite. No gave inheritance. The Levites, meaning the polity of Levites, were set apart for the service of the Lord. Hence, no inheritance is given to them out of the land grants. But this does not mean that they did not possess an inheritance. Next week is one of my favorite sermons out of the book of Joshua. You may not get a thing out of it, but I absolutely love what is said in that sermon. Verse 33 continues, the Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he said to them. Yehovah Elohei Yisrael, who nachalatam ka'asher deber lahem. Yehovah God Israel, he, their inheritance, according to which spoke to them. The Levites, who include the priestly class, received from the land of the people the Lord's portion, the tithe. Hence, he is their inheritance. As we have previously seen, they picture Christ in the service of the law, administering it mediating it, fulfilling it, and finally bringing it to its end. This finishes the land grant, including the cities given to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, all of which is east of the Jordan. The book is being very precise in what it is presenting. And think of it. This is only for an earthly inheritance of land that will be filled with a group of people that may or may not care at all about the Lord. But he promised that they would receive it, and so the account is meticulously detailing every bit of what is being given. If God is going to go into such great detail over something like this, and for a group of people that he is already labeled as stiff-necked, imagine how carefully he is recording the details of our inheritance. Are we stiff-necked? He's recording that. Are we expending ourselves in his service? That is being recorded. Above all, are we living as people of faith in his presence? This is the key to everything else we do, and it is the main point upon which every single reward or loss will be based. It is faith that brought us to Jesus. It is faith that secured our salvation, and it is faith by which our deeds will be reckoned. So in all you do, have faith. Be thankful. That is demonstrating faith. Pray and ask God for his guidance. That is demonstrating faith. Spend your time talking to the Lord. That too is a demonstration of faith. The closer you align your thoughts to the thought that God is already with you, the greater your faith will be. The inheritance awaits. Let us live in faith until the day we are brought into it and receive it in all of its fullness. And may that day be soon. I absolutely assure you that typing the sermon was a lot more brutal than you listening to it, okay? There's so much information, but I did not want to leave any details out. So everything is in one compressed and precise document where people can go and say, there is no contradiction. There is nothing missing. This is not an error because people love to do this. And when you least expect it, somebody comes up and says, look at this. This is important. Even if it's tedious and we've gone through these same names at least five times before, this is important. God is detailing 
his story for us. He's detailing things that we need to know to say, I trust that this is the word of God, that this word is without error, and it will tell me what I need to know. Now think of it. God created you and me. Now, if you don't believe that, I can't help you very far, but it's true. God is the creator, and we are the created. He knows every single thing about us. He knows what makes us run properly. He knows what makes us morally good or morally deficient. He knows all of these things. He's given us this book right here to tell us about these things, to let us. He didn't get into every detail of our life. He doesn't tell us if you do this on Sunday at three o'clock. He didn't do that, but he gives us a general guideline. He says, I'm trustworthy. With all of this information, there is no error. There is nothing wrong. I am trustworthy enough that if you pick up this book and read it and apply it to your life, you are going to have a good life, even if it's a terrible life. I keep thinking of Johnny Erickson Tata. What a person laying there in bed, bed sores, takes her three, four hours to get up and get out in the morning. Terrible life. And yet she has a wonderful life. Why? Because she knows the author of this book. People, we heard about one on uh, Thursday night at Bible class, a guy that was drunk, was throwing his life away, was on his way to commit suicide after having, what was his, a shoes he sold or something? The last thing he had. He's walking down the road and he hears a sound and somebody invites him into a place. He gives his life to Christ and he becomes an evangelist. He was just about to kill himself, but he heard the word of God and then he applied it to his life after that. This is what we need right here. And what we're doing in these sermons is that important. Trust this word. Trust the God who gave it and trust the simple gospel. You know, it's so frustrating to see people say, well, we're not allowed to do prison ministries anymore. It's the only ministry in the world that has the level of recidivism, or however you pronounce that word, that anything has. Almost everybody else ends up back in jail, don't they? Almost everybody, except the people that come to Christ and apply this book to their lives. They never go back to jail. They become productive citizens. And yet, we can't preach that in the prisons anymore. Are you crazy? You just want people to just be miserable? Yeah, that's the way society is going. Trust the simple gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. Those three things are the gospel. We cannot add to it without damaging it. We cannot take away from it without damaging it. And then Paul just explains how you appropriate that. Believe in your heart that God did these things for you and you will be saved. This is what God asks of us. So simple. I typed a commentary either yesterday or today. I can't remember about the simplicity of the gospel. People use this term, easy believism. They say it's, they, they preach a gospel that's too easy. Listen, the very fact that they say that means that easy believism is not easy. You see that? They cannot accept that what this book says is true. They're acknowledging by saying that what it says isn't true, that it is not easy to believe. Everybody, do you understand that? Do you understand what I just said? The Bible says, if you believe that Christ died for your sins, he was buried and he rose again, you are saved. And he said, well, you have to have works to prove it. Or you have to make Jesus Lord of your life first in order to prove it. Or you have to repent of your sin to prove it. None of those three are in the gospel. And so they say, well, that's easy believism. They don't believe the simple gospel. So they're proving their own 
not thinking through the issue. It's the most difficult thing in the world to say, I cannot save myself. There's nothing I can do to save myself. And I'm going to rely wholly and completely on somebody else to save me. That is not an easy thing to do at all. But that is what God asks us to do. When I say repent, people always blow up about that. What do you mean you don't have to repent from sins? You repent after you come to Christ. Nobody gets himself healed and then goes to the doctor. We come to the doctor to be healed. Everything matters in theology. Everything. Easy believism, you call it whatever you want. It is the hardest thing in the world. But if you just simply do it and say, I accept that Jesus did for me, you will be saved. Please do it today. Our closing verse, you can see I'm getting angry about this because I want people to understand the beauty of what God has done, not tear it apart and add to it and take away from it. It's the most beautiful thing on this planet is the Lord Jesus and the message that he has given to us. Our closing verse is 2 Corinthians 5. I read you 1 Corinthians 3. This is the comparable verses from the next epistle. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Salvation is eternal, but we will be judged. Our inheritance is up to how we respond to him, and it must be in faith. Next week, what a great... I'm going to ask a question. I'll ask it at the beginning of the sermon next week. How do you bring perfection out of imperfection? How do you do it? The Bible tells us. Joshua 14, 1 through 5, to a different inheritance, they have the rights. No part to the Levites. That'll be our 29th Joshua sermon. It's only five verses. Wonderful, wonderful words from the Lord. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. I start thinking about next week's sermon, and I forget what I'm doing. Oh, I just love this word. It's so precious. Apply it. You're going to have a happy life. Even if you have a bad life, you're going to have a good one. I got a question before we read our poem. Um, I think what you should do is raise your hand, because I think more than one person's going to get this. Hezekiah was set to die. However, after pleading with the Lord, a cure was administered. What was the cure used on him? Oh, that's okay. You were both at the same time, but you blurted out in defiance of me. But that's okay, because you got it right. A poultice of figs. Can I give it to her? This is what somebody didn't get last week. Oh, Chick-fil-A was last week. Okay, when you come up here, that is yours. Very good. I told you two people were going to get this. It was a poultice of figs. I, I did. I said it. You didn't hear me. Okay, very good on these two ladies. And yes, the traditional gets it every time. Bible scholar right here. I won't say her name and embarrass her, but she's the wife of Sergio. How's that? <laughs> I, I, I know very few people, apart from her and Burke Carrico, that can really put you on the spot with the Bible. Right there. Unbelievable. Okay, this is an inheritance by Jericho eastward. And Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families, as we have seen. The territory was from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the ravine. And all the plain by Mediba, Heshbon, and all its cities that are in the plain as well, Debon, Bamoth, Baal, Beth, Baalmeon, Jahaza, Kedimot, Mepha'ah, as the record does tell. Kiriathayim, Sibma, Zereth, Shahar, on the mountain of the valley, 
Beth Peor, the Slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jeshimot. And that's not the final tally. All the cities of the plain and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses had struck in one spree, with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hor, and Riva, who were princes of Sihon, dwelling in the country. The children of Israel, also killed with the sword, without haw or hem, Balaam, the son of Beor the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. And the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. Yes, it's true. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben, according to their families, the cities, and their villages too. Moses also had given an inheritance to the tribe of Gad. To the children of Gad, according to their families, was the score. Their territory was Jazer, and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the Ammonites as far as Aror, which is before Rabbah. And from Heshbon to Ramath, Mizpah, and Betonim. And from Mahanaim to the border of Debir. And in the valley, Bet Haram, Bet Nimrah, Sukkot, and Zaphon, a lot of land, it would seem. The rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Kinneret, on the other side of Jordan eastward, so was the order. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad, so the record does tell, according to their families, the cities, and their villages as well. Moses also had given an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families, it is so. Their territory was from Mahanaim, all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, so the record does show. And all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead, Ashtarot, and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan, as we know, were for the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for half of the children of Machir, according to their families, it is so. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance on that day in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward, so the records say. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. It was so. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he had said to them, and as they came to know. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story of redemption. Thank you for the details that are there to assure us that your word is just A-OK. We have nothing to worry about. We have no, no need to fret whether what we're putting our eggs in the right basket or not because eggs are very expensive nowadays. But Lord... We thank you that your word is sure and that we do have them in the right basket. There's nothing that we need to do except just trust you from day to day, putting our trust in the fact that you have redeemed us and you will bring us to a good end. Thank you for that assurance that we possess. Thank you for the, the stories of the inheritance of Israel that tells us that this is so. We're grateful to you for such assurances. Thank you, O oh God. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, to make this story kind of come more alive for you, um, I know where Sergio's personal favorite place, or I think it's his personal favorite place in Israel, if he could uh, have his own piece of property, where would it be? Negev. No, but definitely not the Negev. <laughs> Go ahead and tell him. 
Say it again and tell us about Bishan. it. Say it loud so everybody Golan can hear. Heights. Golan Heights. Golan Heights. The area of Bashan that we've been reading about. There's a lot of names, a lot of cities. Tell them what it's like. Tell them the place you told me, another place that you thought is very similar to that that you visited. Uh, similar to what? Another place that you visited and you said it's a lot like the Bashan. In Israel or here? No, no, no. Somewhere you visited. It's over in another country. It's a long, looks like a boot at the end of it. Italy, oh, that's right. Yes. Where in Italy? One certain place you said this is so much like the Bashan. Don't you don't even remember. Don't Tuscany. You told me it's very much like Tuscany. Yes, yes. Okay, now he's saying yes. I have to remind him of his memory. It's a it's a beautiful place. If you've never seen pictures of it, go go look online how beautiful this area is. And that's you know, we're listening to all these names and they don't really have any meaning to us unless we know the beauty of the land that God has given them. So there you go. Anyway, it's uh, an area that obviously is in dispute right now. Israel had uh, up to the Sea of Galilee, and this is this giant land that's overlooking Israel. It's a high place, and Syria had it, and they could have come down on Israel anytime and destroyed them. So they needed to capture that land. And, you know, the land of Israel at that point, besides that, is only eight miles wide. Uh, by the time you know a plane is coming, it's already gone through Israel and dropped its bombs. So it's important what the Lord has done by giving them this land as a buffer Amen. once again. And uh, it'll all be played out in the end times, but for right now, it's uh, a place that he has described to me. And when I think of it, I just kind of dream of these rolling mountains and the beauty of it. I've been there, but I don't remember. I was, you know, in the back of a bus with 40 other people, and you're kind of <laughs> looking out a window. So anyway, I'd like to spend some more time there one of these days. In a way, it's even prettier than Tuscany because it has this variety of flowers. And oh, yeah. Everything. It's so beautiful. Untouched. And you get this all this wildlife roaming around. It's, nice. It looks surreal. You know, once you ask him to say something, you can't get him to <laughs> shut up, can you? <laughs> Thank you. That's what I want. I want you to have an idea of what he's told me in the past, and so it makes it come alive to yeah. me. When so. you were reading the sermon, when you got to the point that you said, Og, King of Bashan, I jumped up and my eyes opened up. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that beautiful, and it's such a good memory. So, there we go. Okay, we got the uh, Lord's Supper to take now.